Exodus chapter 12. We look at Exodus chapter 12, then we're going to also turn over to the book of Ephesians and the book of John later in the message. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read verses 33 uh, down to the end end of the chapter 51. The Bible says, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. If you missed last week, the tenth plague came. God killed all the firstborn who were not under the uh, blood on their door. Uh, all the firstborn of the Egyptians, Pharaoh's firstborn, the slaves' firstborn, the prisoners' firstborn. And so there was a, a, a massive uh, death count. And so when the Egyptians found this, they finally, their will finally broke. And so the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also. Uh, that could also be translated an ethnically diverse multitude. And flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to, the pass, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, On that very same day, that's the very same day of the Passover, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observation by the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of, of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the, Egypt, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. One of the main points of the sermon is going to be talking about race and culture. Does anyone ever have, feel awkward about those conversations? Racial reconciliation, talking about race problems in America or cultural problems. Uh, I do. Why are some of the reasons we we feel awkward about that, talking about race issues? We don't want to be accused of being a racist. We don't want to say the wrong thing and offend somebody. We don't feel it's right to be connected uh, or labeled or, or put the blame for past actions before we were born. Uh, there's a fear that sort of we are going to be held to uh, be held guilty for what our predecessors did, or we're going to be excluded because of how we talk about it. 
So racial reconciliation is a very tense subject in America and in our church. And what we do a lot of times is we make it a political issue. The problem is, it's not. It's primarily a scriptural problem. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that the fear of being offended or offending somebody or being labeled has no place in this because we have to talk about what God says. And so looking back at Exodus, Exodus shows us that God's redemption plan has always had racial reconciliation as a focus. And gospel ministry includes racial reconciliation. Some of us are going to have to change the way we view this. We've been taught something different. I'd like to show you from the scripture how that was wrong. Gospel is part of racial reconciliation. You don't preach the gospel and not talk about race. Why? Because God doesn't. Not because of whatever you heard from politicians or the news or the whatever. Because God doesn't. God talks about race when he talks about the gospel. And he always has. So if we are going to be a gospel people, a word-centered people, we must focus on what God focuses on. And to do less is unfaithful. And to divide up parts of the gospel and divide up parts of God's message is not faithful to God. So let's look at what God has done. In this passage, we see that God's people are visibly unified, visibly unified in physical Israel. Okay, who are God's people? He shows us in this passage who they are in the Old Testament. They're visibly unified. You can see them in a thing called Israel, a physical group of people. So at the beginning of Exodus, who were these people? They were the descendants of Jacob. Jacob is called Israel. So it's a little confusing for us because we think of Israel as a nation, but Israel was also a person. He was Jacob, who later called Israel. He had sons. They had sons. They got taken to Egypt. So the children of Israel are literally the descendants of a man named Israel. So they got taken to Egypt. They grew. They got put into oppression. We talked about the first part of Exodus. But something changes here. A new dimension is added to this group of people. It's no longer just the children, the descendants of a man named Israel. It's now a group of people. You can see that in verse 47. All the congregation of Israel. Now, Israel's dead. He's not there. So what's happened is it's the word's being used differently now. It's being used to identify a group of people. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, or in verse 3, it says, speak to all the congregation of Israel. That's the first time that word is used. What's happened? There's the children of Israel who were descendants of a man who are being changed into a group of people, a congregation. That's significant because it's going to go for the rest of the, through the rest of the Bible. So no, no longer just descendants, but now it's a congregation. And who are this group of people? Because before it was easy. Was your ancestor Israel? Simple. You're a child of Israel. Now it's different. Now who are they? Who is this congregation? It's those people that were delivered by the blood event. I use the word blood event because it's not a metaphor or story. It's a, it's a thing that happened. What was it? Kill a lamb, put the blood on the door, and God won't kill your firstborn. 
Don't put the blood on the door, and God will kill your firstborn. That's a blood event. Blood was shed. And you could tell which group you were in by your relation to the blood. If you were not delivered, then your own flesh and blood was killed. If you were delivered, you're now in the congregation of Israel. So he's identified them by the deliverance of the Passover. The Passover, he literally, God passed over their house because there was blood in the door. Blood had already been shed for that house. So who are the congregation of Israel? Those who put blood on their door and were not killed. You see, that's no longer children of a man. Now, it was mostly children of a man, so it's still called the children of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But now it's a people identified by those who were delivered by an historical event that could be seen. Secondly, they're followers of God's word. One of the defining characteristics of the Egyptians is that they would not do what God said. But now look at this, verse 35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. Look at verse 50. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So you could see who the congregation was. Why? Because they were following Moses. And who was Moses? The word of God. It was God's word in Moses. He delivered. He was a prophet. And so these people had the Passover, followed Moses, followed God's word in Moses, and they were visibly unified by an ordinance, by ordinances. What's an ordinance? It's a command. God commands you to do something. So look what it says. The ordinances were, there were two ordinances. One, circumcision. Two, observe the Passover. So in verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. And then the rest of the passage there tells how to observe it. It wasn't just think about it. It wasn't just remember it. It was visibly be seen participating. So this congregation of Israel visibly unified around something. All the males were circumcised, like God said. All the women were, were in a relationship with a man who was circumcised. That's how they were included in this, this physical Israel in the Old Testament. Secondly, those who were circumcised then took a meal together. Notice it says here in verse uh, 46, in one house it shall be eaten. First, uh, at the end, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. That's unity. Why do you eat it in one house? Because it's a communal meal. You don't eat it by yourself in your house. You come together and you eat it. Who eats it? All the congregation of Israel. Emor says they don't break the bones. It's a symbol of unity. Why? Because you need to visibly identify who this group gathered people are. Who are God's gathered people? You can see them at the same time and in the same way, gathering together to participate. And so God has identified his people here by two ordinances, circumcision and the, and the Passover. And you can identify them because they are following God. But there are some problems in this passage and in humanity. There are some barriers to unity that have always been there, and God has specifically taken time to address them. The first barrier to unity in the human society and human culture and the human nature is status. Rich people don't like to be around poor people. 
Free people don't want to, to unify with slaves. That's just the way people are. People of a certain cultural status don't like to hang out with people who have a lower status. We all do it. But at this time, it was very obvious that there were slaves, people who had no freedom, had a different status than people who were free. And what does God do with that? He says it's a problem. It can't be ignored. It has to be dealt with. Now, what he does is he says, if they're circumcised, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then may he eat it. The slave, the poor, that's a problem. Pretending that it's not a problem doesn't not make it a problem. This is the word of God. So when God brings it up, it means he cares about it. And he understands that it needs to be dealt with and addressed. Status, race, ethnicity. Race is, a, is, a, is not really a, a good word because there's only one race, which is the human race. God explicitly says that he made all men of the same blood, or all descendants of Adam and Noah. But in a social construct, we use the word race to refer to different ethnicities. Uh, man has divided itself among some superficial uh, physical characteristics. So when I use race, I mean that in a superficial way. If you want to use ethnicity, that would be similar. But we tend to use the word race to, to refer to the, the superficial qualities. Uh, so race, ethnicity, or nationality. In other words, your skin color is different. You are from a different country. God talks about it here. Why? Because, if you didn't know this, it's a huge problem. And it's been a huge problem for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And God says, let's bring it up. He says, look, no foreigner shall eat this. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. When a stranger dwells with you, what are these things? One law should be for the native born for the stranger. These are people who don't look like you. God has to deal with it. He says, you can't be my people unless we overcome some of these barriers, overcome racial barriers, overcome ethnic barriers. They have to be dealt with. You see what God's doing here? He's telling us what to look for. God's word shows us what God cares about. And so he explicitly, with no apology, at the very beginning, you see how early this is in the nation of Israel? This is the first day. Amen. So when it says up here in verse, um, in verse 41, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day. That very same day is the same day of the Passover. It doesn't mean 430 years later on that day. It means on the same day that they killed the lamb, put the blood on the door. That's the day they left. That's their official emancipation. That's their official uh, becoming of a nation. They were slaves before. Now they're a nation. On that same day, what's the first thing God brings up? Race. The first day. He doesn't wait till later. Why? I'm not exactly sure why, except that it must have been a problem. He says, it's going to be a problem in your future. Why is it going to be a problem? Because God knows people better than we know people. And he says, I already foresee that you're going to have racial problems. You're going to have ethnic problems. You're going to have foreigner problems. And if you read the history of Israel, they did. A lot of them. All the way down through Jesus' day. Race is a problem. God doesn't ignore it. We can't ignore it. Also, culture. Sometimes two people can look the same, but don't live the same. Where does culture come from? 
it's how your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents learned to survive. They said, you need to live this way in order to survive in this world. That looks different for different people. You live in China, part of your culture is rice. Why? Because it grows well over there, apparently. And so if you want to survive in that part of the country, you need to learn to eat rice. And so when I was in Korea, there were, there were certain habits that you had around the way you ate rice. Why? Because it's part of their culture. It was how you survived in that culture. Many different cultures have many different habits because they have to deal with different problems. But when those cultures come together, what happens? Their priorities are different. What they think is important is different. Their value system is different. How do we view rice? Optional. Not a big deal. That's a clash, and that's just a small, little, tiny thing. How about how we raise children? You see, raising children was a huge problem in the Old Testament, and still is. One of the greatest ways to get into an argument with someone is tell them that they're raising their kids wrong. Where'd they learn to raise their kids? First, from their parents and their grandparents and their great-great-grandparents, or else the people around them. So cultures are how people survive in their context. And that's why cultures look different, because people have to survive differently and are faced with different challenges. The problem is when they get together in one place. See, when it's just your people and your place, you don't even, you're not even aware of culture. It's just everybody living. It's just normal. This is what's called majority, uh, uh, majority culture. In a majority culture, no one knows that there's a culture. It's only when the majority culture is confronted with another culture either a minority culture or a foreign culture. Then you realize, hey, you're doing it wrong. What you really mean is you're doing it differently. But majority cultures don't always realize that until they're confronted with somebody else. And so when these cultures clash, you have problems. And God saw that from the very beginning. So that's what he says, when the stranger, who's the stranger? He's the guy who does things differently. When the foreigner, the one who's from another country, and they want to give you a hug or they want to kiss you on the cheek to greet you, that's a problem, right? You go to Australia and everyone acts like they hate you, or New York City. <laughs> What's happening? Cultures are clashing. Foreigners are getting mixed in with natives. And so God says that's going to be a problem. Strangers, foreigners, sojourners, all these are different words for people who are not from where you're from, who are not from Israel's place. He says, we've got to deal with these on the first day. You can't move forward as a nation until we deal with these issues. God specifically sought to overcome these differences. You see what he did here? Uh, he says, no foreigner should eat it. But every man's servant who was who bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then may he eat it. Now, I don't know if you realize how radical this is. He's saying that a servant who you think you own gets to sit at your table and worship with you just like you. That's radical. That's unheard of. And so from day one, God is saying, I'm going to destroy slavery. Not right now because Israel's imperfect and the world's imperfect. But I'm going to put a crack in the foundation that we'll never recover from. And in the laws of Israel, you actually had to free all your slaves every six years. That radically changes the way you view slavery, especially when you have to welcome them into your house. Notice it says, so you should eat in one house? Your slave, who you think you're better than, must sit at your table, eat your food, worship equally. Before God. That's radical. 
God says, I'm going to fix this problem in the way I worship, or the way I want you to worship. There's no class here. In fact, none of the, cla- none of the laws in Israel had anything to do with class. Rich, poor. It was equal. They applied to everybody. If anything, they raised up the poor. They told you to take care of the poor. They weren't sort of one law for the rich and one law for the poor. So here, if you were poor, you ate with the rich. He says, I'm going to intentionally overcome this. Look at race, ethnicity. This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner should eat it. Now, that sounds like, whoa, wait a minute. What he means is no one who will not subject themselves to me can eat it. But then he goes down, he says, and when a stranger... Is there nothing, there's nothing scarier than a stranger, right? What do you tell your kids? Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Strangers are dangerous. We're taught that from a very young age. But here's what God says. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. That's it. Let him acknowledge that God is the Lord, obey the Lord, and he gets to come into your house, sit down with you, and share this meal with you. And he shall be as a native of the land. Try to understand how radical this is back then. Back then, it was a dangerous time to live, right? They didn't, they didn't have a lot of social structures that protected people. One of the ways you protect yourself was keeping your people away from other people. God is saying, if someone walks into your land walks up to your house and says, I want to worship with you, as long as they do what God says in a very simple way, they get to come into your house and eat with you. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. God says, I'm going to overcome this racial problem. And here's how I'm going to do it, by not letting you treat them differently. So he says from the beginning, I'm going to overcome it. Here's the problem. Israel failed. They failed at this. They became more racially segregated. They, be, they were supposed to be a witness to the nations to say, come here, you can worship God, doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, you can worship as long as you follow God. It didn't happen. They rejected that. They either assimilated into the nations or they became very segregated. And you can see that in the New Testament with the way that they treat Gentiles and the way they treat um, non-Jewish people. It's very difficult to become a Jew. Israel failed. Why? Because people are bad. And that's one thing that hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament to now. People are bad. They want to have division. Why? Because I'm better than you. And my people are better than you. And my culture is better than you. How do I know? Because I'm better than you. I don't need to explain it. We just know. We just know that foreigners do it the wrong way. We just know it. We're better. Now, whether we admit it or not... The sin is still there. You see, we can say that it's wrong. It doesn't change the fact that it's there. Pride says, I'm better than you. Now, whether your pride comes out in saying, I have more money, so I'm better, or I have a different skin color, so I'm better, or I have a different social status, and I'm better, it's all the same, isn't it? See, we're so afraid of being called a racist that it's the one sin that none of us are guilty of. All the sins in the Bible... We're like, yeah, I could have pride, I could gossip, I could be greedy, I could be lazy, I could be... But I'm not a racist. (laughs) What happened? You see how we're so proud, we're so protective that we've basically said of all the problems that man has that God is dealing with specifically, we don't have that problem. How'd you miss it? 
I'm not saying you're racist. I'm saying there's a very good possibility you could be one. Where does racism come from? Pride. And everyone has pride problems. What this does is it frees us to admit that we've got problems. You see, what the church and what America has done is we've made one sin. We can't be that. We can never admit that we're that. We have to fight any chance that people would call us that. So we're not even going to talk about racial issues lest we be called a racist because that's the one thing we can't be called. Why not? Why are we afraid to be called a sinner? Why are we afraid to be called a certain kind of sinner? Did Christ not pay for that sin? So it's our pride that says we can be all kinds of sinners except for these. There's no chance we're one of those. So what we've done is we've, we've put layers on sin. These are the bad sins. We're not those. These are the other sins. Yeah, we, we got problems with those. God doesn't do that. That's not realistic. It's not biblical. God says from the beginning, you're going to have problems, Israel. I'm going to try to fix them for you, but you're not going to have any of it. Those problems are still here today. Those barriers to unity are in our church. This church right here. Let me give you an example. Do we want to preach the gospel to all people? Do we want to reach all people, specifically all people in our area? In the area around our church, uh, Anne Arundel County, Howard County, PG County, or Laurel, Bowie, it's only 50% white. Chesapeake Baptist Church is 94% white. Now, you shouldn't feel bad about that. I'm white. God made me this way. What's the disconnect, though? Why are we only reaching a tiny percentage of the people who live around us? We're not saying go to other places, go seek out people in other countries. We're saying the people who live, eat, work around us. 50% are white, so we should reach white people. But 50% are not white. Who's reaching them? It's not be a missionary, it's be a neighbor. Our church is not doing that. Why? I don't know exactly why, but I imagine it's because of sin. Unless not preaching the gospel to certain people is not a sin. So what's happened here is sin is in our lives. But the Bible says you should have already known that. That shouldn't be a surprise. You should have been like, oh, of course it's sin. Talk about that in Sunday school. When you realize that you're the problem, it shouldn't be a surprise. It should be the first solution. Of course I'm the problem. I'm a sinner. The reason we're not reaching a more diverse people is because we don't want to. Because if we wanted to, we would do it. Why don't we want to? Because we're sinners. Don't be afraid of being called a sinner. Don't be afraid of being called a racist. Why? Because God died for racists too. And being a racist or being proud or being greedy or being selfish, they're all really, really bad. And so if you're called any one of those, you should say, is it true? It is true. I repent. I'm glad I don't have to live by my own merits. Chesapeake Baptist Church should be built around that principle. And when people find out you're a sinner, no one's surprised so that we can admit it, so we can look around and say, how can we spread the gospel? So we've got a problem. So what's the solution? This is where we have to go to the New Testament. See, this is not the answer to our problems here. This shows us that God has always had a concern with it. The answer is in the New Testament. You can start in the Old Testament, and here's a principle for studying the Bible. You can start in the Old Testament, and you should, but you can't stay there. You can't stay in the Old Testament. You have to go to the New Covenant. 
to figure out how to deal with these problems. So look up in, in Ephesians. What you're going to see here is this wasn't an Israeli problem. This wasn't a Jewish problem. This is God's focus. He focused on it at the beginning of his people, and he focused on it at the end of his people. So now we're going to see the church, and guess what God focuses on in the New Testament church? Race. Not generically, specifically. In Ephesians, Old Testament Israel is pointing to the church. It's pointing to the work of Christ. How? By showing us what God cares about, by showing us God's people. So God's people are visibly united in the Old Testament in physical Israel. They're visibly united in the New Testament in true Israel. Who is true Israel? It's the Son of God who was faithful. Faithful Israel, who kept God's commands, who followed God. Who is that? It's only one person. It's Christ. Old Israel couldn't cut it. They're racist, they're selfish, they're pagan, they're idolatrous. New Israel, true Israel, Christ did do it. So now we're visibly united in this true Israel, Christ. How? Ephesians 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ, you can read that as in new Israel, in faithful Israel if you'd like. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of him, by the blood of Christ. How were they delivered? How were they identified in the Old Testament? By blood. How are we identified in the New Testament? By blood. We are delivered by a blood event. Not the concept of blood, not the idea of blood, but an event. A man was killed and he bled out. That man was Christ Jesus. So we are identified by that. We are delivered by his actual blood, by his actual death. So who are God's people? In the Old Testament, those delivered by the Passover. In the New Testament, those delivered by the cross. So if you're here today and you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross or you're not trusting that as your only way, you're not God's people. You're a foreigner. You're a stranger. You're an outsider. There's only one way to get into God's family. It's through blood, specifically the blood of Christ. That's it. No race, no class, no ability, no level of sin. It's simple. Trust Christ to pay for all your sins when he died, and you're in. And if you haven't done that, you're out. You're on your own. You're not God's people. But if you have, you are now God's people. And it says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. You see how narrow this is? You want to be reconciled to God? One body, one person. Thereby putting to death the enmity. How? Through the body of Christ on the cross. If that's not your identity, you're not God's people, and you're not at peace with God, and you're separated. But those of us who have done that were identified by an event, a historical event. We're followers of God's word. Look at verse 20. Having been built, this household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. How did you know the old people? How did you know the, the people in Israel? They followed Moses. When Moses walked out, there was a bunch of people behind him. Why'd they do that? Because God told them to. 
How do you know God's people in the New Testament? They follow God. They read it in the Bible, and they do it. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Brought into a new covenant community. Look in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Remember the strangers and the foreigners? They couldn't take the Passover. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see what's been changed? In the Old Testament, you had to become a part of the nation of Israel to take the Passover. This is new. Chapter 3, it says in verse 3, how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery. What mystery? A mystery that they didn't know in the Old Testament. What was that mystery? In the Old Testament, how did you get to Passover? You became an Israelite. You joined a, a, a group of people that you could physically see who had borders, who had a government, who had an identity on, on earth, physical uh, location. But a mystery is being revealed now. Things have changed. Look in verse 6. Here's the mystery. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Not the Gentiles become Jews. You see that? That's the mystery. You had to become a Jew in the Old Testament. God didn't care where you came from, but you had to become a Jew. Now he's saying you don't have to become anything except in Christ. That's racial. Words like Jew and Gentile are explicitly racial terms. They are not generic concepts or ways of living. They're referring to the ethnicity of certain people. And God is saying, I'm explicitly showing you something that's been there since the beginning that is now being revealed in regards to race. You don't have to change your race. You don't have to change your ethnicity. You don't have to change your nationality to be in Christ. That's the gospel. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs as Gentiles of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. When you divorce race from gospel, you've split this verse in half. Look at verse 11, 211. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, in case you wondered if this was a physical attribute, it is, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at time you're without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who are once far off been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to who? Not the Jews, brought near to Christ. You see what God is doing here? He's saying race is a big deal and it needs to be dealt with. And here's how you deal with it. The gospel. Taking race out of the gospel is diminishing the gospel. God is telling us that since the beginning, he's been working against racial separation. He's not getting rid of the races, sort of blending them into nothing. That's nowhere in the Bible. He's saying you don't have to change it. You don't have to change your ethnicity. You, in your ethnicity that you are right now, can be in Christ. Amen. And that diversity is part of the church. That's why in Revelation, it doesn't say all those who were once of this nation and now have changed. It says of every nation, tribe, tongue. They're unified not in their nation, tongue, tribe, but in Christ. What's the visible unity of the church? It was circumcision in the Passover in the Old Testament. What is it now? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Who is the church? Show me the church on earth. 
It's not those who are circumcised and take the Passover. That's the old Israel. Who is the true church? Those who have been baptized, taken the oath covenant after believing to follow Christ, and those who gather around the table to commemorate what Christ has done for them. Show me those people, and I'll show you the church. So how does race relate to that? It means when you see the church, you should not see racial division. The gospel says unite the races around the table. So when we take the Lord's Supper, do we see that? Because if we don't see it, we've lost some of the gospel. The point of this is, if you don't want to talk about race, you don't want to talk about the gospel. Not just race, but racial reconciliation. That means people from different races not changing who they are to fit into another race, but in their own races coming together as brothers and sisters. Not changing who they are in their race. Not adopting another culture. Coming together in Christ. That's profound, especially in a majority culture. Because we don't realize what a majority culture is if we're in it. That means not having people act like us. That means they act differently. It's okay. The real question is, are they baptized? Do they follow the word? Do they take the Lord's Supper? Not... How do they do it? Not how do they do these different things that culture tells us is right or wrong. You see how simple the church is? Because it's about Christ. It's not about us. So how do we do this? How do we live in God's vision here? What's some practical things we can do? The Bible shows that race is important, and racial reconciliation is part of God's plan for the gospel and for the church, which means it's part of the plan for this church specifically. How do we take that vision and put it into our lives? First of all, you have to see that Christ reconciled the races together in him, not in one race. Do you see that? Because if you don't, there's no hope. Getting along, tolerance is not the answer. The answer is to see what Christ has done for all races equally and is not dependent on anything one race does or doesn't do, what any one culture does or doesn't do. So you see that. Secondly, you see our deep sinfulness. Admit that we're the problem. Why aren't we reaching all races? Because we don't want to at some level. It's uncomfortable to go to other people who live differently and eat different foods and talk differently. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It gets us out of our comfort zone. Often politics comes from culture. And so people's politics are based on how they grew up and how they're raised. And nothing divides people like politics. So reaching other people means not talking about politics sometimes. Why? Because it divides in a non-gospel area. When do you talk about politics and when do you don't? I don't know. But here's a, here's a way to figure it out. Is it going to hinder the gospel work or is it going to increase it? Is it going to cause division among ethnicities or is it going to unite it? Abortion is a political issue. We're going to talk about that. Why? Because the Bible talks about it. Other things are not so much. So we see that we've got problems. Now we can work forward. We're not telling other people, come be like us. That's part of the problem majority cultures have is that we want to bring people into our culture without realizing it. That's called paternalism. Paternalism is saying, I want to help you by be making you like me. That's a very dangerous way to live. It's subtle because you're trying to help people, 
But you're not helping them be like Christ, you're helping them be like your, your culture. We have to seek unity in the church. How? Two ways. Around the word, like Moses, like the children of Israel, like the New Testament church. Simple. If it's in the Bible, we unify around it. If it's not in the Bible, we don't talk about that much. We have difference of opinions. That's radical when you start doing a comparison about what we talk about and what's in the Bible. As a church, we talk about what's in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, we're free to disagree. We want racial unity in our church? Start with the Bible. Secondly, we do it in love. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. That's the only commandment he really gives. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. What's loving one another look like? Because we all think we should love one another, right? What's that look like? Specifically in terms of race and ethnicity. What's that look like? Jesus gives us an example at the beginning of the chapter. Now before the feast of the Passover, notice the connection, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, uh, having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God, was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas Iscariot. He washed Judas Iscariot's feet, knowing what Judas would do. How do you love other races? Start with kneeling before them and washing their feet. If you think about that, that's about the hardest thing you can do, isn't it? Because if you're like me, my race and culture is better than yours. So if I have to kneel and wash your feet, I've got to stop talking about me and focus on you. That's why Jesus said this is so radical. I mean, if, and he goes on, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, who he is, he says, and you say, well, for so I am, I am better than you. I am right. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. If the perfect, always right, always better Jesus can wash Judas's feet, certainly we can do it. Washing people's feet at least means listening to their perspective, hearing their story. I believe, and I think the scripture shows it, the first way to racial reconciliation practically is listen to people from other ethnicities and backgrounds and try to understand what they're saying. Not try to interpret into your culture. Not try to tell them why they're right or wrong. Just listen and not talk. That's hard. That's surprisingly hard. First, it means you have to go find them. Find people who aren't like you. And then listen to them, which means making them comfortable enough to talk to you. That means doing something like Jesus did. Jesus actually washed their feet. Have you done something like that for people who are different? Something is equally dramatic. That's the love of Christ. That's the gospel. That's what this church should do. 
racial and cultural issues are an opportunity. This is not a guilt sermon. This is saying we have an opportunity to do things differently than people in the past did. You see the opportunity? People that look like me did some really, really bad things. I can be different from them and say, I've got something different. What? The gospel. It's an opportunity. It's not a feel bad about where you came from or what your people did. It's now you have a chance to be like Christ. How? By showing love where people or other people didn't. If you are a dominant culture, if you have social power, if you have financial power, if you have racial power, if whatever dominance you have, you have an opportunity to put that dominance to serve those weaker. To say, I'm going to give up some of my power for somebody else. I'm not going to speak even though I could. I'm going to let someone else speak who's weaker. If you are part of the weak, maybe you're socially low on the status, maybe you're a racial minority, maybe you've been oppressed, you also have an opportunity to show the gospel. How? By not being bitter at real oppression. People have really oppressed many people in our church. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross. What does it mean to take up a cross? It means shoulder a burden that someone unjustly put on you and carry it. And in carrying it, do something great. So maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been historically oppressed. Great. Now the gospel can be shown. Maybe your people have historically oppressed other people. Great. Now you can show the gospel. You see the opportunity we have in this culture? It's amazing that there's only 50% white. Now we have an opportunity that people in North Dakota don't have, that people in in India don't have, that people in Russia don't have. We have a a unique opportunity in this area to show the gospel in a multiracial, reconciling way that other people don't have. Are we going to take that opportunity to show the gospel? It's hard, isn't it? It means sacrifice. It means giving up. It means loving others more than us. It means the gospel. See what Christ has done. See what God has always been about. Believe it and live it. Let's pray.